Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is episode 161. I have no idea what the date is. I want to say the 11th? It's the 12th of May. 12th, I was close. All right, so 12th May, episode 161, and very big show coming up. We're going to be doing some pretty heavy thinking, which we like to do on a Tuesday. We've got Senator James Patterson, Liberal Senator for Victoria. We're going to be talking to him about Pete's like from Friday's show, The Wolverines. We're also going to be yeah. getting into a bit of... Uh, States easing up on coronavirus restrictions and COVID Safe app. I know a lot of our listeners would be having a few questions for a sender from the Liberal government about COVID Safe, so we asked him about that. And uh, yeah, just a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Always good to have him on the show. And then Gideon, uh, sorry, Gideon's on the show. Pete, talk us through this Gideon interview. Well, James, later on the show, as you mentioned, we're going to speak to Gideon, who's the IPA policy director, discuss a really exciting new podcast from the IPA. It's called The Heretic. This will take listeners inside Peter Reid's fight for freedom of speech on climate change and go behind the scenes of the case against James Cook University for his work on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, So it's got interviews with Peter and many people involved in the case. The podcast, The Heretic, is coming out on Friday, but there's a catch. Don't know if catch is the right word, but it's a catch. You have to be a member of the IPA to listen on Friday. If you aren't a member, you'll have to wait and you will be able to listen to it eventually, but if you want to listen to it on Friday... You have to become a member of the IPA. And if you're obviously, if you're already a member, you'll get it. So if you're not a member, go to the ipa.org.au as part of this membership deal. Not only do you get exclusive access to the Heretic, you also get a special offer of a 12-month membership for 55 bucks, which is a great deal, as well as other exclusive content. So we talked to uh, you about that later in the show. Absolutely, yeah. It's and a really exciting podcast. Oh, sorry. sorry about, and continue. we'll be playing a little trailer in that interview with Gideon, just yes, a little teaser. Uh, Really exciting podcast that we've got coming out from uh, Gideon and from the IPA. Can't wait to listen to it, as with all of our members. Uh, and yeah, don't miss out on that membership deal. And we haven't interviewed Gideon yet. That is later on today. But Pete, I imagine we'll also be asking Gideon on his thoughts on Daniel Andrews and restrictions. Because if anyone's been following Gideon on social media, uh, the man's got some thoughts. So I think we'll be getting a few of those. He is a very, uh, what's the word? He's a very enthusiastic contributor to Twitter. Yes. Gideon. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you'll see a lot of comments there if you want to know more about Gideon. All right, cool. So, yeah, like I said, loaded show coming up. But uh, there's a lot of stories we need to talk about. So, on Friday, uh, on the show, we were talking about how the federal government came out with like this three-stage plan to easing coronavirus restrictions. And we thought, okay... We get it as like now there's a yardstick for states and territories to mark themselves against and some can be in stage one and then that puts pressure on other governments to get to stage one, which is what's happened because most states are now in stage one or are on the way. So New South Wales are in stage one from Friday. Western Australia, ACT, South Australia already at stage one. Tasmania is going to be there from the 18th. Queensland from the 16th. Northern Territory has left us all for dead. They are already planning out the public holiday to celebrate the return of drinking. Uh, But then there's Victoria. And I know we have a lot of listeners all around Australia. And this podcast does get a bit guilty sometimes of being a bit Victoria-centric, especially with footy chat. But Victoria is clearly the most... uh, uh, newsworthy state for their responses to coronavirus restrictions and the easing. Now, I know we had the announcement on schools this morning, but Pete, I've got three things I want to talk about with Victoria. Uh, Mother's Day, cafes, and then the creepy, uh, the creepy media release from Daniel Andrews. So, which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> oh, this is too much responsibility. I reckon, go go in order that you spoke, that you said them. All right, so, like we'll start off... 
Okay, sweet. So we'll start off with Mother's Day. Now, Mother's Day was like uh, a pretty big day in, well, not just because, you know, everyone wants to pay respect to the great mums around Australia, but also it was like a day that a lot of people wanted coronavirus restrictions, at least stage one, brought forward to. Like a lot of states said, okay, we'll have gatherings of five for Mother's Day. Victoria did not. And now Victoria, from 11.59 on Tuesday night, Victoria is now allowing gatherings of five people. So I ask you, Pete, what magical thing happens at 11.59 on Tuesday night that makes it safe for five people to gather in her home that would have been death to everyone had it happened on Sunday? That's a really good question. I've got a theory about this. I reckon that they were not planning to do what the federal government wanted them to do and then they realised actually this is going to be a PR nightmare if we don't go along with New South Wales at least. So I reckon it's a little bit of a political calculation because Berridge Clean gave her press conference straight after ScoMo's whereas Daniel Andrews did but didn't say anything until Monday. So it's like I reckon they've all weekend they've sort of gone back and forth about what they're actually going to do. Yeah, for sure. But like that's that theory. still means that Victorians, I mean, you know, a, a brief glance at people's Instagrams would have found that the whole don't visit your mum on Mother's Day wasn't the most followed of all rules out there. But mm. the point is, it was like it wasn't legal for you to visit your mum on Mother's Day if you weren't living with them in Victoria. And it just seemed to be because, as you say, the state government wanted to save face on, hang on, we're setting our own timeline here. And sorry, like, you know, I have problems with authority at the best of times, but the whole, like, I want to stick with the plan and you can't visit your mum just so I can stick to the plan that I had already is a pretty bad selling point to me. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, it was silly that a place like New South Wales people could do that where the death rate and the infection rate is higher. Maybe not the death rate, but the number of people that have died is higher. And they've got a bigger population than us, yet they were allowed and to do cases. it. And more cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So people are like, why can't we do it? What I would say, though, is that having a quick glance at the, uh, the coronavirus daily update from yesterday from the IPA, stage one begins for Victoria begins on May 13, which is tomorrow. And stage two, stage one for New South Wales begins on the 15th of May, which is two days later. So we are two days ahead of New South Wales in that regard. But they had less onerous restrictions for stage what like zero or whatever that was whatever the previous stage is called well there's one other way that uh, new south wales is beating I, I know on the dates but hmm. stage one includes restaurants being able restaurants and cafes being able to seat 10 people like that is the health advice that's the government that's every other state and again except victoria because when daniel andrews announces the restrictions that are coming in 11:59 p.m on tuesday night which you know is the magical time where things become a bit safer but <laughs> Cafes and restaurants still aren't allowed the 10 people, which is not what the health advice is. So why not? Here's the quote from Daniel Andrews. If we wait three... I think the feedback from many businesses is that at just 10 patrons, it's hard to be viable. If we wait three weeks, if we do the testing, we have that further assurance that the significant steps we took today isn't causing us trouble that we can't manage, then I think we can take a bigger step potentially in June for cafes and restaurants to get them to a point where they are viable. Now... There's a lot of pubs, there's a lot of restaurants that won't be viable with 10 people. But Pete, who do you reckon gets to decide whether or not they're viable at 10 people? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, but yeah, obviously the cafe, that's the answer to your question. And, and the pub, that's like amazing for Daniel Andrews to say, bit concerned that you might not be able to turn a, turn a profit. So I'm going to say, no, you can't open at all. Like as if, you know, does if anyone anywhere will buy that? Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about the cafe that I've been getting coffee from every day of this lockdown. There is a very easy way they could sit 10 people and also keep it like, please do take away. But so, yeah. 
But the government, like Daniel Andrews with his, you know, MBA in cafe management has come in and gone, look, I've, I've crunched the numbers on your cafe. There's simply no way you'd be able to do it. Why would it be? Why would it, would it be like a union thing or something? Or because obviously I, that makes no sense at all. I genuinely don't. Well, uh, as he said, it's just not viable. So Daniel Andrews has clearly crunched the numbers on every single cafe in Victoria and he's just come up with a clear figure. Yeah, that's crazy. That's uh, crazy. All right, and then uh, last thing I want to talk about is the media release. So, yeah, uh, I'm interested in this one. This is it, this is going to be fun. It's like it, it, it's creepy in some senses. Where like I, I, just the sentence from 11:59 this Tuesday night. There's now a fifth reason to leave home, visiting friends and family with a maximum of gathering up to 10 outdoors and having up to five visitors in your home. Now, I know coronavirus happened so quickly that we're now like conditioned to that, but that is one of those ones where you just step outside of yourself and go, imagine telling yourself in January that you'd be reading this and going, that's good news. Like you'd go, who invaded us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly like, right. That, sorry, go on. No, just it's just crazy. Your point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sort of... Maybe, like, that's the thing. Maybe, like, at 11.59, he's chosen Tuesday. Imagine all the uni students. They'll just be, like, counting down. And then once, obviously, you know, really mature people like us that have jobs won't be heading out at 11.59 on the Tuesday. But those uni kids, they'll be, they'll be Well, stop, stop right there, Peter, because a media release goes on. I don't know if you've teed this up for me because he did it well. The media release goes on to say, I know this will come as a welcome relief, but I need to be clear. Although these are our first steps back towards normalcy, they're not an invitation to host a dinner party every night of the week. It's not about having a rotating roster of acquaintances and associates or your third best friend from primary school over for a visit. This is about That's... seeing those you need to if you need to. So is it okay to have five people over or not? Do I need that to, absolutely like, sucks. Do, do I need to register them? <laughs> do I need like a government dad. person to go like ah, uh, I don't know if that person's one of your top five. I reckon they can give it a miss. Yeah, no, nah, that's your dad saying when you're like fifteen. You know, now I'm going to let you go to this party, mate. But you know, I want you to behave yourself. Don't tell your mother. You can drink a little bit, but you know, blah 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 blah. That is just like absolutely. I think your dad's much more lenient than Daniel Andrews <laughs> in this in this analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like it's so paternalist, you know. Yeah, I mean. If I'm allowed to have five people over, I can do whatever I want. It's, it's, yes. it's not the finger waving, you know, oh, don't invite your third friend, blah, 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 blah. And look, uh, I know they're going for a joke and I hate people that get up in arms about jokes, but <laughs> are media releases about coronavirus restrictions really the time to wheel out the line or your third best friend from primary school? Just kind of read know. the room a little bit. Is that a joke? I just reckon that's the... Well, I don't think people were genuinely going, uh, look, I've read through your policies and I just want to know if I can have my third best friend from primary school. I think that's just a bit of like, oh, you know, don't have this person over. Uh, I just yeah. think time and place. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. It's Daniel trying to be, you know, one of the Down people. with kids, which uh, we're going to get into later in the show about someone else. Uh, yeah, just creepy stuff. Other states, uh, Thank you for listening to the Victorian Centre content. Just be thankful you don't live in this state because Pete and I do and these are the restrictions that we're going to have to keep dealing with and I reckon by the time you're all at stage three, I'll just be able to sit down at a cafe for 15 minutes with like a full hazmat suit on and that's the only yeah. way I can do it. Yeah, with your state-issued coffee. Yeah, and the government uh, agent that tells me whether or not the person I'm having coffee with is one of my top five. Yeah. All right, uh, Pete, you want to talk about Sweden? Yeah, well, not necessarily about Sweden. I just wanted to draw people's attention to some really interesting pieces of sort of research uh, slash articles that have come out literally in the last couple of days. There's a bloke on Twitter called Eric Anger, E-R-I-K. 
K-A-N-G-N-E-R. He's a Swedish professor at Stockholm University, and he put out a range of graphs about the lockdown, which showed... Uh, it compared various models, academic models, of what was going to happen if Sweden didn't have a lockdown in terms of access to... Sorry, demand for Swedish ICU beds. The first two graphs were model-based projections by academics, and the third is a simple extrapolation by the Public Health Authority, and the fourth is the actual outcome. So the two graphs, now obviously most people are listening, but the two graphs of the academics, you know, showed like 20,000 beds being needed uh, in Sweden. Uh, the public health one, we had like 2,000 beds being needed, and what actually happened was less than 1,000 beds being needed. So what the... And he, made, he went on to make some really important, and I think correct uh, points about experts and science and our political culture at the moment. He said we should be tolerant of mistaken projections, as we should be. They're incredibly difficult tasks. The modelers here are trying to be useful and they're working under great time pressure. A true expert, though, would have known ahead of time just how much uncertainty was involved in their forecasts and expressed that accordingly. He then went on to say, scientist overconfidence is a massive problem in the short run. It undercuts efforts to use science to inform policy. In the long run, it reduces trust in science in general. I reckon that's true. If you remember back at the time when the lockdown started, it was like, this is the science. If you don't agree with it, then you're you're a barbarian who doesn't care about old people dying. So Yeah, yeah it, you're it, a grandma killer. Exactly. People questioned your morals, you know, if you didn't agree with it. And... As society becomes more and more complicated and as the global challenges we face are pretty complicated, pandemics, the environment, things like that, we need science. But we need to change our political culture around how we use that science and we need... So I think it's a a little bit the scientists themselves realising that models aren't evidence and the political culture (laughs) uh, being more willing to sort of, I guess, debate the science and realise that it's not locked in. Yeah, for sure. Good point. I always get like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's just a human psychological thing, but whenever there's like five models and one of them's like, this is the end of days, the end of days guy gets a big media spin. It's always like, oh, yeah. oh, what's this guy say? Like, how many murder hornets are there in California? Like, that's the kind of thing that we get. Uh, exactly right. right. So we're now going to interview... Oh, sorry, a I'll just have a couple, one or two oh, quick things. Go. Sorry, mate. Uh, so I just wanted to quickly mention that Matt Ridley has done two articles over the last couple of days, which are really good. We've spoken to Matt Ridley on the show before. Uh, he's, a, he's a really interesting scientist. Uh, he does one article. Uh, so go to his blog. You can read them for free. Matt Ridley, just find it on the internet, um, where he tears apart the Imperial College model in the UK, which uh, Professor Lockdown that we spoke about last week was responsible. He had a good line about saying that he, should, he shouldn't have got sacked for um, breaking the lockdown. He should have got sacked for the model. So check that out. And another article he wrote today was, we cannot about, uh, sorry, on Sunday about coronavirus, which said, um, we cannot figure out how it is about coronavirus. We cannot figure out how much it is spreading in enough detail to tell which parts of the lockdown of society are necessary and which are futile. Several months into the crisis, we are still groping through a fog of ignorance and making mistake mistakes. There is no such thing as the science. So sort of going to the same point. Um, and there's heaps of heaps more detail in those articles, which I won't go through now, but check them out. I like the idea that Matt Ridley goes, uh, he should be fired for the model, not for uh, breaking the restrictions to see your married lover. Him just going, look, hey, look, love is love. I'm not going to yeah. get into that. That's a man's business, but the model. Well, Matt's a, he's a lover, not a fighter, you know? Like he, just, uh, he, just, he wants to talk about the science. All right. Uh, uh, last thing I want to talk about before we get into the interviews, uh, and this is a bit of a downer, and I know we're all up and about, but it is important. 
US unemployment rate is now 14.7%. 20.5 million jobs were lost in April. It's the uh, worst rate at any time since the Great Depression in the 1930s. And just two months ago, two months ago, US unemployment was 3.5%, which was a 50-year low. Uh, this is just another reminder to people out there listening that if you are concerned about the economy and you are concerned about people's jobs as a result of coronavirus restrictions, you are not someone that sacrifices grandmas at the altar of Ayn Rand. You are someone that cares that 14.7% of unemployment is a bit too high and 20.5 million jobs lost is a bit sad to read. Like, you're not evil if you are worried about that. And I would say to people who go, we just need a lockdown until there's a uh, vaccine and that, that idea... Like, instead of us going, uh, like, because they'll throw, oh, well, how many deaths is acceptable? People that want the inevitable lockdown until the vaccine need to go, like, how many jobs should actually be lost before you'd get concerned? Or how many people, how long should people be out of a job for before you would get concerned? This is my point on that. Yeah, exactly right. And there's the human cost of all that. Uh, You know, suicides, we spoke about tuberculosis last week. Um, I think it's still open to question how much of the lockdown actually made a difference. And I think we, we don't, I don't think we know yet. And I think we, we will know in the future, hopefully, but it's still open to question. Now we're going to hear your friends more and more say, and the government say, you know, the lockdown fixed coronavirus. I don't think, I think a lot of water has to go under the bridge before anyone can make that claim. All right, sweet. So, yeah, bit of a downer note to end that part of the show on, but I really That's want right. to get it off my chest. And we That's now go life, to... Man. We now go to our interview with Senator James Patterson. All right, we're now joined by friend of the show, Senator James Patterson, who came across our attention last week because he's formed a gang in Parliament called the Wolverines. Actually, their official name is the Parliamentary Friends of Democracy. So, James, welcome back to the show. Why don't you tell us about the Wolverines and uh, what it's all about? Thanks, Pete. Well, it's a very exclusive invitation-only club, so there's a lot of uh, high bars you have to meet in order to qualify for membership. But it, it, essentially, it's a tongue-in-cheek um, you know, play on, on a very serious issue, uh, which is Australia's relationship with China and particularly the behaviour of the Chinese Communist Party uh, in our region and in the world uh, in recent years. Uh, Wolverines is a reference to uh, a movie, a 1980s movie, Cold War-era movie about how uh, the Soviet Union invades the United States and a small group of high school students call themselves the Wolverines and, and form the resistance. It's the American equivalent of Tomorrow When the War Began, which is a book that a lot of us would have read in, in high school or when we were young. Uh, and it was remade uh, a few years ago as a kind of a modern take on it. Um, but, uh, but essentially, it's a bipartisan group of, of MPs and senators who think that uh, reasserting Australia's national interest, uh, our values and our sovereignty is necessary in the current era, particularly given the behaviour of the Chinese Communist Party and its increasing authoritarianism. Uh, you said it's invitation only and hard to get into. Uh, now, the last week's show when we brought it up, I said any team that's called the Wolverines, I want in because it's just such a cool name. So what are the things that I can do? What can I prove myself to get into the Wolverines? Do I need to be this- an elected member of parliament? Yeah, that's that's the first bar, and unfortunately, you haven't yet cleared that one, James. Maybe in due course, um, but uh, not quite yet. Um, and then uh, a very important part of the process is being awarded your sticker. In fact, I exclusively oh. can reveal what the stickers look like here today. I've got a few spares in my office in Canberra. I'll be handing out a few of these this week to some new members who've qualified for membership uh, in the last few weeks by being outspoken uh, on these issues. So I look forward to distributing them soon. 
All right, on a serious note for a second. Now, I, something that's really interesting about this, I reckon, um, which must be hard for someone like you to tread the line on as someone who's a serious free trader and a free marketeer. We saw this morning that China sort of uh, threatening to raise tariffs against Australian barley. Uh, we know, you know, yourself have talked to prominent members of Australia's Uyghur community who have relatives in incarceration in China. How hard is it to sort of, I guess, tread the line between pushing back on China but also recognising that you don't want to hurt uh, people in the Australian community who've done nothing wrong, who are just trying to run a business and who might export stuff to China? It's a real challenge, Pete, because as you say, uh, I'm a free trader. I believe in the free enterprise system. I believe that government intervention in the market is generally a bad and harmful thing and we should minimise it absolutely and that includes to our international trading relationships. Uh, what we have to recognise, though, is that our trading relationship with China is not like our trading relationship with every other country, and that's because it has a very different political and economic system that we do. The, the uh, entry of the state, the interference of the state in their economic system is much more extensive than us and most other countries that we trade with, uh, and it's an enormous player, so when it does so, it has a huge impact on the world. Uh, so this is a really uh, fine point of um, tension in, in our political philosophy is people who believe in uh, Australia's national interests and our values and our sovereignty, but who also want open and free trade. Um, one thing which I don't think anyone would ever accept or should ever accept is that uh, our trade will be penalised by others because of the things that democratically elected politicians in our country say. When I speak out, as you say, about the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or Tibet, uh, if another country's government chooses to penalise Australian private enterprise for that, well, that's very regrettable, but I'm not going to silence myself in order to prevent that from happening because then not only would be allowing a foreign government to control our economy, we'd also be allowing a foreign government to control our political system as well. So one of the objectives of people like myself and Andrew Hastie and Tim Wilson and others in recent years, Amanda Stoker, there's a whole group of us, Dave Sharma, uh, is to normalise political disagreement between Australia and China and allow uh, business relationships and trade relationships to continue to grow and to flourish despite that political disagreement because Canberra and Beijing don't have to be in complete agreement for a wheat farmer in Western Australia to export his barley uh, to China. In fact, they should be completely independent of each other. It's only uh, China which really seeks to link those things in the Chinese Communist Party specifically. Sorry, the infamous Twiggy Forest press conference thing wasn't, as he says, the greatest beat up of all time. Uh, it was uh, not a bad up. It was uh, an astonishing and extraordinary thing. I mean, a citizen and a successful businessman. And if I ever need advice on how to run a mining company, he'll be one of the first people that I would call to ask for that advice. But if I need advice on Australia's national interest, uh, on standing up for our sovereignty, on our foreign policy, he is not among the first people that I would call. In fact, to put it politely, he's among the last people that I would call. And for him to be engaging in freelance international relations by, uh, off his own beat, inviting the Chinese Consul General without informing the government that he was doing so. In fact, giving the Chinese government more notice of his intention of them to be at that press conference that he gave his own Australian government, uh, that, was a, that was a deeply inappropriate thing for him to do. And I think he's been rightly criticised for it. So, James, uh, one of the things that's annoying the Chinese at the moment is Australia's call for an inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, as far as you know, because that's an EU push as well, isn't it? That's not just an Australian push. Do, do you know if they're sort of also threatening to punish the EU? And also, why do you support an inquiry, I guess? 
Yeah, Australia was the first in the world effectively to call for this. And I'm very proud that our government was the, the, is, has been leading this debate internationally. Uh, we were able to do that because relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world, we have avoided the health catastrophe that others have had. And our economy has certainly taken a huge hit, but hopefully Touchwood doesn't look like as severe a hit as some of the other countries in the world have been. So we have a relative luxury to be able to start thinking about these sorts of things. And of course, the first item on any national leader's to-do list after they get through the crisis phase of something like this is how do we prevent this from happening again and a genuinely independent international scientific investigation of the origin of the coronavirus seems like a, a just an inarguable proposition it's just such an obvious thing that needs to happen so we've been calling for it others have jumped on board as you say the european union included uh, you're right to ask whether we're the only ones being penalized for this or appear to being penalized for this um, because often in the australian political debate we think um, China, the Chinese Communist Party does some bad things and we've got a choice whether we should speak out about it or not. And there's some in Australia who say, oh, we should just be quiet about it because it would disrupt our trade relationship. And we sometimes think that we're the only people in the world having this discussion, this debate, but actually uh, it happens all around the world and there's many people in similar situations to us. Um, Sweden has been having a very serious diplomatic dispute uh, with China for a number of months over a dual uh, national Swedish uh, uh, Chinese dual national in Hong Kong who was a bookseller who was jailed in Hong Kong for selling books that were critical of the Chinese Communist Party and the Swedish government has rightly been advocating on their behalf and that's escalated into quite a serious dispute. Uh, the, the Dutch have been engaged in a similar dispute. There have been similar threats of retaliation. Every country in the world basically that China has a diplomatic relationship with is having going through a very tense time with them and there was a story in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that recounted the dozens and dozens of Chinese diplomats around the world that had been called in to their host country's foreign ministry and given a dressing down because of their behaviour and that includes things like calling the coronavirus the Japanese virus and the Italian virus and trying to uh, mask its origins in Wuhan in China and they've been rightly held to task not just by us but by many, many other nations. Uh, so let's move over to the restrictions uh, and just the local fight against coronavirus, I guess. So on this podcast and the IPA in general, we've been talking about how Daniel Andrews seems to be dragging his feet on most of the easing of the restrictions. Uh, you're a Liberal Senator for Victoria. What has Daniel Andrews dragging his heels done to undermine confidence in the national health advice, like particularly on schools? Yeah, I think schools is the most obvious case where Victoria's actions do not match up with the scientific and medical advice that they've been given. Uh, the National uh, Medical Committee that consists of all the, the chief uh, health and medical officers of each state and territory and, and Professor Brenda Murphy at the federal level has been absolutely unambiguous from the very beginning. The advice has been consistent. It is safe for schools to remain open. Uh, the greatest danger in schools is not, not for kids transmitting to each other or even kids transmitting to adults, but in the staff room uh, at the school between adults. Uh, that's where the danger lies. And adults are able to put in appropriate social distancing measures, appropriate personal hygiene measures to mitigate against that risk and to stop kids from having to learn from home, which we know is incredibly disruptive to their learning, particularly if they come from a disadvantaged background. They're the ones who are going to suffer the most. It's all very well and good if you go to a great elite private school that's well set up for remote learning and you've got a really supportive home environment with parents who are engaged in your learning and all the equipment you need. But not every kid has that. And those kids are going to fall behind a lot, I fear, from being uh, taken out uh, over the last few weeks from their classrooms. So why has Daniel Andrews been dragging his feet? Uh, it's up to him to, to demonstrate why. I cannot understand why, except if 
is being uh, led uh, by the nose by the teachers unions who appear to be quite hostile to the idea of teachers returning to the classrooms. Uh, their members have a luxury that most other workers don't have. If they're from if they're working from home, they get paid in full. They don't lose a dollar. Uh, but a lot of other industries don't have that luxury. If you don't turn up to work, you can't get paid. Uh, and so perhaps that illustrates why they've got a different position. But we should always remember that people who lecture others about accepting the science when it comes to climate change have themselves been denying the science when it comes to uh, whether it's safe for a school to be open or not. That's a really interesting point, James. I wish I had made that over the last few weeks on the Young IPA podcast. So if we just saw the Andrews uh, press conference just a couple of hours ago, with, this has been recorded on a Monday, um, regarding the removal of some restrictions in Victoria. Do you think that he should have gone further or he should have come in earlier like other states or what was your take on those? I'm glad Victoria has finally moved, but it was the last state to do so. It had the most restrictive uh, measures in place to begin with and it has liberalised the least out of all the states. And we have one quarter of many active cases as they do in New South Wales. So activities you've been able to do in New South Wales for weeks, like play golf and go hiking and do other activities, have been banned in Victoria. Uh, in New South Wales, uh, in fact, in every state and territory, you were able to go and see your mum on Mother's Day, but you weren't in Victoria. Daniel Andrews has now announced you can have up to five uh, guests in your home, which is much less generous than most other states. He's done nothing for cafes or restaurants, for playgrounds, for schools as yet. Uh, I hope more of that will come and I hope it'll come very soon because the cost to people's mental health, to our society and our economy is incredibly, incredibly serious. Uh, and the longer it stays in place, the more damage it will be done. And so it shouldn't be in place for a day longer than absolutely strictly necessary. Uh, and I, I think there is a very good case for Victoria to lift more of those restrictions and lift them sooner, uh, particularly in relation to, to cafes and restaurants. Why is it safe for a cafe and a restaurant in New South Wales to have up to 10 patrons in it, but not in Victoria? I, I can't understand why the science would be different across those borders. Yeah, one report I saw was just that they doubted that any cafe or restaurant could turn a profit with 10 people. And I thought, isn't that up to the cafe or yeah. restaurant to decide that? Like, why, why does the government get to decide that? It, Exactly. I, I don't know about Daniel Andrews' full professional history, but I'm not aware of his time uh, as an entrepreneur running a cafe or a restaurant. I don't know where he thinks he gets that expertise. In fact, I saw on Twitter already today, uh, cafe and restaurant owners saying, well, we're already open to, for takeaways. It wouldn't cost us anything extra to have us open for a limited number of patrons. Of course, we'd love to have as many patrons as possible, but if 10 is all we can safely have, well, then we'll take that and we'll do that now. Why delay that any longer? It makes no sense at all. Exactly right. Now, another massive issue that we've seen over the last few weeks is obviously the government's uh, COVID safe app. Australians, both sides of governments haven't been super great at protecting Australian data. Why do you think that Australians should trust uh, the government with our data for COVID safe? Yeah, I understand why a lot of Australians are hesitant about this. I understand why they're very uh, concerned about their privacy because Governments of all stripes, uh, federal, state, Labor, Liberal, have not don't have a perfect track record in this area. They haven't always respected the privacy of their citizens as they should, and they haven't always put in, in place as strong and robust protections as they should. Uh, actually, though, I think in this instance, we are putting in the most robust, robust protections we have ever put in. Uh, there are criminal penalties for inappropriate access to the data uh, under uh, the coronavirus app. Uh, there are a whole lot of very serious uh, oversight mechanisms for this that we've never put in place before for anything else. In fact, there's lots of things the federal government has done that are far more invasive than this app. Uh, mandatory data retention, for example, I think collects much more useful private and sensitive information about citizens and, and none of these oversights apply. Um, what I'd like to see going forward is 
uh, these new, tougher, higher standards for privacy being applied uh, more consistently, I think that should be the gold standard that we should strive for. And maybe not every single aspect can apply to every single thing we do, but the more we do, the better we do. Uh, and I think it is appropriate that we've, we've made it voluntary. I wouldn't support uh, the app being mandatory. So ultimately, if you're not personally convinced, then you don't have to download it. But but from my point of view, uh, if only we'd put in uh, these kind of protections for everything the government do, that does, that would give me a, a great more confidence in, in trusting my data to government and I think citizens as well. This is why that answer was so good because halfway through, I just remembered how angry I was at metadata and suddenly the COVID safe app is just like slightly less high on my list once I get through metadata. Uh, Objective but, achieved. Thank you, James. There we go. So, uh, yeah, I'm still not downloading the app, but damn metadata. Anyway, uh, let's move on to some other things. So you're part of team ISO facial hair. We've seen Evan Mulholland at the IPA grow it. You're growing a little bit of it yourself. Is this going to be a regular feature going forward or just a bit of holiday? It is a test uh, for the coronavirus period. I don't know if it'll survive the lockdown. That depends in part on when Daniel Andrews frees us from our homes. Uh, but my wife's a fan. Uh, the jury's out among my colleagues. There are some who like it, some who don't. So we'll just see what emerges on the other side. Uh, I think it'll probably take a few more years to get really impressive, deep coverage, uh, not aided by my uh, light blonde hair, but um, I'm doing my best. That's interesting. I yeah, I mean, really, realistically, it's like the wife gets the final say over what yeah. you know the facial hair is so so that she's the one that's going to be listened to not the colleagues now i forgot to ask i've just been going through my list of questions at the start we forgot to ask whose idea were the stickers for the wolverines because that seems like a real, uh, that was actually you know, um good kimberly one. kitching's idea she's a labor senator of victoria one of the very outspoken members of the labor party on this issue known to john roscombe at the ipa and others uh and uh, has really frankly it's harder for her in the labor party sometimes than it is for us in the party to be outspoken about this we've got a culture of free speech and intellectual freedom in our party. They don't have that in the lower party. It's much harder to do. So I think she's shown great courage by doing that and great ingenuity in coming up with the stickers. That's interesting. If we could, sorry, James, if we could just um, uh, go a bit further on that in terms of the Labor Party and their attitude to China as opposed to the coalition. Is it the same? Is it the same breakdown? Is there less uh, less of a likelihood to go after China? Or I imagine what, they're more what, critical what now that Sam Destiari is gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a factor. I mean, yes, there's there's a couple of complicating factors on the Labor side. One is they don't have that culture of intellectual freedom and outspokenness. So there may be many more Labor MPs who agree with us on this, uh, but who don't feel that they can say that. Uh, the other is that the Labor Party has been very much into identity politics, and they are very sensitive to the accusations that are sometimes raised that criticism of the Chinese Communist Party is racist. Now, it is obviously not racist to criticise a government and to make the very clear differentiation that I and my colleagues do, between the Chinese Communist Party on the one hand and the Chinese people on the other. They are different entities. And in fact, it's because of the support and encouragement I received from Chinese Australians that I am as strong and as vocal as I am about the Chinese Communist Party. Many of them fled the Chinese Communist Party and they came here for a very good reason. They enjoy the freedoms that we have and they want us to be outspoken about this. Uh, so the Labor Party, I think, is more sensitive to that, that accusation. Uh, and so you've seen fewer Labor members be outspoken about it, but there's a handful. Peter Khalil is another, um, Anthony Byrne is another. Typically Victorian Labor MPs uh, have been particularly spoken out. New South Wales division of the Labor Party has though had very cosy, tight relationships with uh, with people trying to push the Chinese, the Beijing line, uh, push the Chinese Communist Party line. Sam Dastyari most famously, but uh, there's a couple of upper house MPs uh, in the New South Wales state parliament who have been effectively propagating uh, Chinese propaganda in Australia for a number of years now, and they are very tight relationships. 
Uh, I got one final question. So I, I follow you on Instagram. It's a very good Instagram. One thing you've been doing a lot is a bit of a bookshelf flex. So when you've got a TV cross interview, you'll uh, prop your laptop up on a series of books. Now, I got a lot of questions about this. Are you tailoring the books to the interview subject? And I know we've caught you in your Canberra office, so it wouldn't be the same today. But had you been at home, had you had the home bookshelf, what would you have bought to the Young IPA podcast? Mm. Well, I'm glad you asked, James, because I have a quite an interesting array of books underneath my iPad right now that I can share with you. Uh, I have The Party by Richard McGregor, which is a groundbreaking book into the Chinese Communist Party a few years ago. I've got How We Invented Freedom and White Matters by Daniel Hannan, a great uh, friend of the IPA and the freedom movement. I've got and friend, uh, Christopher no, no, Hitchens, Hitch well, 22. Yeah. That, indeed, yes. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Hitch 22, brilliant uh, insight into his life and, and journey. Uh, I've got uh, Lyndon Johnson's Master of the Senate, uh, sorry, Robert Caro's Master of the Senate, which is about Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and on the bottom, I've got Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order. So uh, I think relevant to the topics we're talking about today. For sure. Which one of us is the Lyndon Johnson of this podcast, do you reckon? Who's the fire and the overlord? I'd think it's I you, mate. I, know I, you're I reckon so. The IPA. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Uh, so, Senator James Patterson, uh, I am going to have to start lodging a uh, run for parliament so I can join the Wolverines. So, look out for an independent running for uh, whichever seat I'm in. I can't remember which one it is, actually. But, uh, yeah, anyway, thank you so much That's for joining start. the show. I look That's forward to your start. application for membership, James. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sweet. Thanks, Thanks so James. much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, James. Okay, thank you too, James Patterson, for that interview. And I looked it up, Pete, and I'm just in the border of the uh, the electorate of Cooper. Sorry, Jed Kearney, watch out next election for an independent running for the uh, Get James Bolt on Wolverine's party. Uh, now, as discussed earlier, we've got Gideon Rosner on now to talk about The Heretic, the new podcast out Friday from the IPA about Peter Ridd's case against James Cook University and his fight for freedom of speech on climate change. Uh, become a member of the IPA to listen to The Heretic on Friday. Go to ipa.org.au for your 12-month membership for $55. You not only get... Uh, the discount membership, you also get access to The Heretic, obviously, and uh, some other exclusive content afterwards. So we now go to that interview with Gideon. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show, great friend of the Young IPA podcast and quiz extraordinaire, Gideon Rosner, Policy Director at the IPA. Welcome back. Great to be here. Great to be a friend of the podcast. Are there any enemies of the podcast? Uh, well, Friendly Geordie's made fun of our last promo, and that was after we defended him against Clive Palmer. So I'm putting Friendly Geordie's as an enemy, and uh, I'm trying to think who else would be an enemy. I didn't know that. No one told me that. Oh, yeah, and Her Pedicle, one of our uh, iTunes reviewers that gave everyone else five stars except I can't speak in complete sentences, which a year and a half later <laughs> is still occupying it- a great space in my mind. I like yeah, that guy. Friendly Droid is an interesting one. I've, I've been, I don't mind a bit of his stuff, but he started slagging me off on Twitter the other day. But um, I've managed to get him to agree to come on the full Rosin so he can talk about it like men. So, uh, oh, huge. yeah. All right. That's no, not that's our approach. Our approach is to continue to bitch about him behind his back. <laughs> oh, I can, do th- I can do that too, baby. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Did you see this latest video slamming uh, our friends of the Australian Taxpayers Alliance because he yeah. lost a debate to uh, Sajit a while ago? Yeah, what the hell? I, I mean, I love the ATA, but surely we deserve to be slagged off as well by friendly Geordies. So come on. Yeah. What, whatever your name Spread is. Spread it around. Uh, get on your bike. Jeez. Only been I think his name is now Friendly years. Geordies. 
legally. Anyway. Uh, now, Gideon, we're bringing you on for a serious reason here. We yes. probably need to a bit of uh, uh, seriousness about this all. So we're launching brand new podcast on Friday. We've been talking a bit about it in the show already. The Heretic coming out on Friday for IPA members. We're so excited about it. Tell us what listeners can expect. Yeah, so, uh, well, it's obviously about the Peter Reed uh, case. And for those who have been living under a rock or not following our stuff, Peter Reed was a professor of physics at James Cook University. Uh, during that time, he spoke out about popular theories about, great, uh, about global warming in the Great Barrier Reef. And for that, more or less, he got, uh, you know, handed out of the university. They searched his emails. They gave him warnings and dragged him to star chambers and all sorts of other things. Uh, with a bit of help from the IPA and a few other fellow travellers, he managed to sue the university and win. And we're awaiting the next step in the case, uh, which is the appeal, which will begin later this month. So the podcast arose because working for John Roscom, our executive director, he's a, he's a real early adopter. And he noticed the success of and enjoyed a lot of those serialised, you know, true crime podcasts like uh, Teacher's Pet or, or the, the Dropout in particular. And he said to me one day, we should do one of these about Peter Reed. And I thought, oh, how am I going to turn a, a workplace relations dispute in the, in the federal circuit court into a serialised podcast? So I got a little recording device that Saul gave me and started driving around Queensland and just interviewing people. And I uncovered some really, really interesting interviews, some great stuff. And, and the story sort of just jumped out at me. So uh, it'll tell the story, as I said, about what Peter Reed said, about what they did to him and about he fought back. And it's going to be a real inside uh, look at, at uh, what is one of the great free speech battles of uh, 21st century Australia. All right. Well, we've got a little teaser here, uh, a trailer of the podcast. So roll the tape. Before the investigations, before the censures, before the gag orders, before the sacking and before the fight in court, there was just Dr. Peter Ridd and the Great Barrier Reef. But on the 2nd of May 2018, Peter Ridd was sacked as Professor of Physics at Townsville's James Cook University. It was the culmination of years in which Peter had been put through hell by his employer. Investigations, disciplinary proceedings, warnings, censures, findings of serious misconduct. His crime? Speaking out against the orthodoxy that climate change is killing the Great Barrier Reef. Peter became a target of his university, who would stop at nothing to try and silence him. But rather than go quietly, Peter decided to fight. This is a story about the state of climate science, about the state of Australian universities. It's a story about university administrators determined to suppress the truth, about Peter's eventual win and the next stage of Peter's fight. I'm Gideon Rosner, and this is The Heretic, inside Peter Ridd's fight for freedom of speech on climate change. Okay, that's an awesome trailer. Can't wait to listen to the show. Uh, now, Gideon, you mentioned... Uh the dropout and the serial podcast, stuff like that. What's your journalism style? Are you a bit of a, an Australian story style to it or are you more gonzo journalism, Hunter S. Thompson, I'm part of it? Well, Scott Hardgrave is probably rolling his eyes right now listening to this, but uh, as he knows very, very well, I'm, I'm, uh, I love Hunter S. Thompson. I love the gonzo new journalism style. Um, but really, this, this kind of uh, podcast has its own style and its own sort of formula and its own alchemy. So... Um, it's very much built on the way a lot of those stories are told. And, and really, I guess, you know, there are a few voiceovers and, and all sorts of other things, but the interviews speak for themselves. And, and, you know, obviously I have a long interview with Peter, which I use throughout, but also 
some really interesting guests I came across, like uh, Ann Carter, the widow of Bob Carter, the late Bob Carter, who was also at JCU and also got handed out because of climate change. I spoke to somebody from the NTU in Queensland who, you know, the first, uh, 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 not the last, I might add, but the first time anybody from the IPA has been to the NTU offices, the National Tertiary Education Union. But uh, And we disagreed on a lot, obviously, but he really... You know, I've got to give those guys a lot of credit. What they do to stand up for the free speech and the academic freedom of their members is quite uh, impressive and quite honourable. Uh, I spoke to former students. I drove out to Geelong to speak to somebody who was uh, a former student of Peter's who confirmed that he was just the most lovely guy and not an ideologue or a zealot, just a, 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 a true old-school scientist. So, uh, yeah, I mean, really, the, the voices in this speak for themselves. Gideon, if there was one story out of the whole affair that you found the most amazing, what would it be? Now, I don't want you to give away all your best stuff, but what would be the, the most amazing story? I guess the best answer is it's the vibe, I suppose. It's, it's the constructive story of it. I mean, again, I go back to the point, speaking to Peter's former student, uh, and, and even towards the end, Peter never really let on what was happening to him. He was, first of all, he was gagged by the university. They didn't actually let him talk to anybody about it. He broke it in the end to, to raise money for his, his trial. But, um, you know, when he let slip what was happening to him, and then finally when they saw him packing up his office, I mean, there were, it's a very small university, JCU, and there are a group of students who just absolutely loved him, and they used to hang out with him and just talk science all day long. And when they saw him uh, packing up his office, a few of them were, were in tears. They just were so disillusioned that... The university could do something to somebody like this who and all he did was was question the scientific method and question the methods that were used so i think that struck out that the you know because we all know the story the legal story the scientific story the uh you know procedural story about what happened to him but the emotion and the toll it took on on people um and also i guess the other thing i'd nominate is the extraordinary depths that this goes to. I mean, my, my chat to the NTU indicated that this is this is not just something happening to Peter Reed. This is happening every day. Universities are stifling free speech for academics every single day. And most academics, sadly, don't have the courage that Peter has to come out. Uh, and uh, so there are a few more details about the shocking extent of that, but I'll, I won't spoil the surprise. You'll have to tune in. Yeah, I'm hoping this one doesn't spoil the surprise, but I think it was pretty out there at the time. But the most amazing thing for me related to the gag order was that he couldn't even tell his wife about it, which I was like, how bad is this gag order and how bad is JCU being on this one? Uh, now, another part I want to ask you, so the Peter Ridd and his trial against, uh, sorry, his case against James Cook University has been a huge part of your professional life for like the last over a year now. What is it about this story that just really struck a nerve with you? I think what well, I mean, what strikes a nerve with me is it's 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 both huge issues of of our uh, t of the twenty first century right coming together. It's it's climate change and having an honest discussion about the science surrounding climate change and what we should do about it. But it's also free speech, uh, and it's also the fact that university. You know, this is happening at universities. This is these are public squares of of open learning. We we should we should be you should be free to say whatever the hell you want as long as you know you don't uh, threaten anyone. Yet they're becoming such a welly in places where increasingly the, the good-natured, honest professors and academics are being sidelined for for administrators. Um, I guess what else attracts people to Peter's case is Peter himself is such a, an unassuming, lovely, kind, honest bloke. Um, if it were some big, bad caricature of what the left called, you know, the climate denier, it, it would be different. Um, but really, he's, he's a sandal-wearing greenie at the end of the day. I mean, if something like that can happen to Peter... 
then how many other Peters are there who are just being turfed out of their institutions for, for saying the wrong thing? I actually reckon that universities are the main game in the whole West. If you think about how there's this discord between people that go to universities and, and everyone else who doesn't go to universities, it all starts because universities are so comprehensively dominated by this kind of postmodern left, uh, what would you call it, Ideo- ideology. You know, and, and Peter Reid's like one tiny part of that. But you can see this is emblematic of stuff that's happening in other countries and to do with topics that aren't just climate change and if to really you know if we really the long term to improve our societies we need to get some balance back in our universities would you agree with that yeah well we, look we, we need to get balance back an alan and... jones question on alan jones's yeah. uh day of the retirement <laughs> oh. big spiel do you agree well i did don't, it in honor of alan didn't i don't don't even don't even no no well you you could do a lot worse than being like alan jones i can tell you australia's greatest living broadcaster but i digress um yeah universities look it's one thing is balance and look universities have always been culturally left places they always will be you know i'm not we we can't interfere with academic freedom uh too much but what we can do is you know if you you create a genuinely open community then you might end up with 10 more peter ribs you might end up with a few more but the other thing about it is We've saw, and this is something that Andrew Bushnell wrote in a really, really good email to IPA members. So if you haven't subscribed, subscribe for that reason and that reason alone, which is we've built the universities up to have a monopoly on knowledge on, on and not just knowledge, the right attitude. So, for example, this coronavirus case is, is, is a case in point. Every time I open my mouth on Twitter or something else to say, look, these lockdowns are a bit excessive. People say, are you an epidemiologist? Have you got a degree? What's your degree? And I mean... I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have a medical degree, but I, I, I like to think I have a semblance of common sense. Um, you know, every Australian should be able to participate in debates about climate change. Every Australian should have a view on what the future of the economy looks like. Every Australian, particularly those who you know are doing it tough, has, should have a view on electricity prices and what climate change means for those. So we don't. It's not just about getting balanced at universities. It is about arriving at a state in which we don't make. And the side issue is that we're very over-credentialised as well. I mean, we need degrees to do things that we didn't 10, 20, 30 years ago. And we're plunging young people into debt to get jobs that they used to be able to sort of pick up as they go. So really, it's about um, widening the discussion and, and getting over this terribly elitist idea that just because you paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a piece of paper with your name on it, you you have a monopoly on, on knowledge and opinion. All right, so The Heretic coming out for IPA members this Friday. Go to ipa.org.au to become an IPA member. You get to listen to it on Friday. We've got the special membership deal as well. Uh, All right, Gideon, I want to move on to... Sorry, just the details. Special membership deal, 12 months for 55 bucks. Yep. Very good. And thereafter, it'll Uh, it'll be released properly about it or to the public about a week after that, but you want to get in early. And you should join the IPA anyway. It's as, as... as Chairman Dan says, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, speaking of Chairman Dan, uh, Gideon, I want to move on to coronavirus restrictions and I want to ask you a very a question you can take whichever way you want. I don't know where you're going to answer on this one, but uh, what have you made of Daniel Andrews' performance in the last week? So, you know, I've always disagreed with Andrews on most things. He's a left-wing woke Victorian Premier, but I've always kind of admired him as a politician. You know, but I, 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 before I was... At the IPA, I spend a bit of time in politics myself. I, you know, I, I, I observe the game of politics. I'm quite interested in it. And look, Dan Andrews, to his credit, knocked off a sitting first-term premier in a strong economy. Uh, you know, did it a little bit. You know, he, he had all sorts of help from unions. You know, 
fronting up to people at polling booths and things like that. But I admired him as a genuinely good politician. Now I want to just kick the living hell out of him. Metaphorically speaking, not encouraging violence, don't write to me. But the, the hatred I have for this man is just so deep because, you know, yeah, I miss going to the pub and restaurants and things like that. You know, I miss taking my girlfriend out to dinner and other works of it. But, you know, that pales in comparison to the dystopian hellscape that we will live in in Victoria as a result of what Daniel Andrews is doing for quite some time. And the, 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 uh, and the amazing arrogance of saying, oh, it's what the experts say, while he lets a lunatic like Annalise Van Diemen run around say, comparing Captain Cook to the coronavirus and all sorts of other things, and he's doing it all with a completely straight face, no apology, no contrition, no, 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 no empathy with what people are going through. It's just this very stern... He, he, honestly, he honestly thinks he's on a political winner by being the strong man, the stern guy, you know, no, no getting on the beers, no this, no that. Now, that worked in the first two or three weeks of this when people were panicking and they didn't know how bad it would get. But now that our hospitals are up to speed, now that we are capable of uh, taking care of the vulnerable and looking after them, to continue to inflict these cruel measures on Victoria... I mean, tonight, the ban on seeing people more than five is, is, is you know, being lifted, Right. He could have done that 48 hours earlier and let people see their mothers for Mother's Day. What is the damn difference? Now, what, what is the point? So, I, well, I think, as I we think discussed earlier in this episode, Gideon, uh, as we discussed earlier in this episode, Gideon, at 11.59, something magical happens to the air in Victoria, which makes it safe where it wouldn't have made it safe before. Yeah, correct. And for what? For what? So he yeah. can say, you know, I'm doing something. I'm a strong leader. Well, you know... Strong leadership works for a while, but, but people resent it. And, uh, you know, people are voting with their feet. They're out there, they're walking around, they're getting on with their lives. I, it, it's really just killing, in particular, my heart goes out, both as a, a keen, you know, fan of the genre, but, but to the, the bar and the restaurant and the pub owners. I mean, these are people who mortgage their house to start businesses and they might not reopen because, for what? For, for Andrews' ego. It's, it's disgusting. What have you made of Michael Gunner's performance up in the Northern Territory? Oh. Uh, more to your taste? Oh, be still my beating heart. Now, that is leadership. That is leadership. The, the bloke <laughs> is the chief minister of the Northern Territory who made a big song and dance about reopening the pubs. Rightly, I might add. And not only that, he's been using his office to call brewers because, you know, it's, it, it's, it's sort of far away from all the breweries to make sure that there was beer on tap when the pubs reopened. And he personally inspected the first keg convoy to make its way down the Sturt Highway. That is the kind of leadership we need. That is strong leadership. Michael Gunner, I'll tell you what, if Michael Gunner uh, ran for a federal seat, I would seriously consider joining the ALP and the Michael Gunner faction. <laughs> I think we need to figure out how we're going to sneak into the Northern Territory because the borders are still closed, but I want to go live in freedom. So do we need to seal ourselves within one of these keg convoys and just sneak in the back? It, well, I, I've said this the other night on Sky. If, if I was in the people smuggling trade, I would open up a Melbourne to Darwin route because that would be really, really lucrative. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly go there and be a, a refugee. As a, you know, we're, we're persecuted in this state, us drinkers. All right, brilliant. Uh, Gideon Rosner, Policy Director here at the IPA. The Heretic, out on Friday, ipa.org.au. Become a member. You can listen to it on Friday. Special membership deal of $55. And as Gideon said, uh, just join the IPA anyway because it's a great organisation. Gideon, thanks so much. Cheers, colleagues. Always a pleasure. Okay, thank you too, Gideon Rosner. Uh, let's now go through some heroes and villains and uh, then we've got two funny stories at the end of it. Uh, so, Pete... The Grunt the Pig, Freedom Snort, uh, the pig that stands up for freedom, wherever it is around the world, who is your hero of the week? Well, my hero this week is partly the Age newspaper here in Victoria and partly the IPA 
and partly the IPA's cut red tape for Australia's jobs program. And by extension from the IPA, Peter Gregory. So, pat on the back for Pete. <laughs> That's right. Now, the reason I've done all this is because uh, the age ran a piece during the week about red tape and not in a bad way. They were saying that red tape's a serious issue and that basically the pandemic and the rolling back of red tape that we've seen to fight the pandemic is essentially a good thing and something that we should have the whole time so that it's easier for business to operate and employ people and do all those wonderful things that we always talk about. They said one silver lining of the pandemic is that it has given many businesses a glimpse of what it would be like to operate without much of Australia's notorious red tape. Now, can you imagine the age newspaper calling the red tape problem in Australia uh, notorious. That's a really big step forward, in my opinion. They talked to Chris Lucas, who's the owner of Chin Chin in Melbourne and Sydney, and he's been talking about how labour laws um, make it really difficult to run his very successful restaurant, even during good times, let alone during uh, a pandemic. And they would have had to close had they not uh, loosened labour laws. Uh, and we should point out that even before COVID, $176 billion per year was spent on red tape. We had Key and Hussey last week who told us that the number of regulations enabled by the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999 has increased by 445% since the year 2000. And as Kim pointed out, that's a big number. So I think you job. pointed that out and he just agreed. He confirmed it. He confirmed. He confirmed, he confirmed like, reports that that is a big number. 445% increase. That's a lot, isn't it? And he said yeah. yes. So great job us, the IPA, and great job the age for recognising and great job for the government for uh, reducing a lot of regulations to help businesses stay afloat. And let's long mate continue. Uh, yeah, whenever people on the left want to return to their uh, fighting for the working class roots, uh, always a big tick for me. So this is exactly the stuff they should be talking about, how to get people That's back right. into jobs. Uh, my hero of the week is good friend of the show, Dave Rubin. I uh, just want to... I mentioned that Dave Rubin's new book, uh, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason, is officially on the New York Times bestseller list. It is uh, number 12 under nonfiction as of this morning. I put that down to the podcast bump. I think uh, yeah. his appearance on Yipper was really what got him into the charts. So good on Dave Rubin. And uh, for people that did miss the episode, I think it was only like a week or two ago. Uh, it feels like five months because coronavirus mm. means every day lasts three uh, usual years but go back and listen to the Dave Rubin episode we've got a giveaway with the book and also a special membership offer so all the details are in that episode go back and listen to it and well done Dave I think it's definitely a podcast bump good all right well motion carried motion passed so uh, (laughs) uh, sign that one off all right should we do villains of the week Pete yep oh so I introduced this don't I I I want no part of it as always the Extinction Rebellion Fake Nudie Run Villainy Award. Here's, roll the tapes all. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Oh, so that is obviously Extinction Rebellion doing a fake nudie run where they weren't in the nude, attempting to save the planet. So that's what we, the award we give for the villain of the week. James, who is your fake nudie run villain of the week? <sighs> okay, my fake v- nudie run villain of the week. Is that not the other thing? Uh, okay, so Alex Turnbull. So... Malcolm Turnbull's kid, very active on the old Twitter. Uh, so I'll step back here. So Joe Hildebrand, uh, friend friend of the show? No, we haven't yeah, had him on. Absolutely. Oh, he was a no, friend of the have. show. Very early first, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very early days. First sort of, you know, 
famous person. Yeah, uh, we should get him Great back guy. on because his stuff on coronavirus has been awesome. So anyway, on the 10th of May, he tweeted out, Joe Hildebrand, just another reminder, when the joblessness hits, when the homelessness hits, when depression and addiction and suicide hits, remember who wished for it, remember who wanted it, and never forget. Which is, you know, basically a better way of saying what I've been saying on the show, which is people that campaign for lockdowns to go on indefinitely, like need to uh, marry that with the fact that this is exactly what's going to happen. So, Alex Turnbull decided to uh, fix it in his words. So he now goes, Alex Turnbull goes, another reminder, when the joblessness hits, in brackets, the newsroom, when the homelessness hits, brackets, the op-ed columnists, when depression and addiction and suicide hits, remember who wished for it, brackets, Rupert Murdoch and News Corp, remember who wanted it and never forget. Now, Pete, when I told you about this, it fired you up quite a bit. Uh, Do you (laughs) want to uh, express why? Well, I wanted to sort of unpack it a bit with you because I'm not exactly sure what he's getting at here. Is he saying that News Corp is responsible for some media outlets going out of business? Yes. And that's That's what he's saying. That's comparable to, you know, 800,000 Australians out out of a job because of a coronavirus pandemic and all the social problems that are associated with that. Yep. A mere metaphor away <laughs> for Alex Turnbull. What is... How could he think that? How could he think that, like, you know, in a competitive marketplace, like the journalist marketplace is, people losing their job is the same thing as a global pandemic? Yeah. That's my question. How, you have to give me an answer, James. All right, <laughs> All right let me step in Alex Turnbull's head and go, uh, News Corp is the great Satan and people that disagree with me are fundamentally evil, so therefore other bad things are their fault. Being on Twitter a bit more, James, uh, over the last... Tell me about bit, Twitter. Here we go. Has uh, let me take a knee. Should I take a knee? Yeah, go on. Let me tell you. I'll tell you. Should, you should follow James, actually. James is really funny on Twitter. But uh, Rupert Murdoch... Oh, yeah. So Rupert Murdoch is like massively in the head of the whole left. Everything is justified on the fact that, oh, well, Rupert Murdoch pulls all the strings in this country. So, you know, we need a billion-dollar propaganda machine because Rupert Murdoch... It's like it's incredible how much they think, how much power they think this guy wields. Yeah, uh, but then the other side of it is study, like it's also inside. It's also fundamentally like just a bad reading of where the Australian media market is. Like the reason that regional papers, uh, sorry, the reason that like papers are going under and there's cuts to the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald isn't News Corp. It's the one one point one billion dollar yeah. media behemoth that the Australian taxpayer pays for. Like, you can say I disagree with News Corp's articles and, you know, good on you, like, have an opinion, but it's not the reason the Sydney Morning Herald are losing staffers. That's right. You you can never repeat that idea enough. Like, if half the country, like, the market for left-wing media is, like, roughly half the country. It's probably more about a third of the country. But anyway, it's a big enough market for people to survive. But there's this massively government-funded organisation. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Alex Turnbull, this is a blow to the United Products of Nepotism, and I will be bringing this up at our next meeting. So he's in yeah, my sights. Exactly. Uh, exactly all right. Uh, I got. Uh, oh, sorry, Pete, your villain. Yeah, my villain. So, well, speaking of massive media, would you say behemoth? Uh, yeah. The ABC. So GetUp is doing a campaign at the moment to support the ABC, and it says, "Can you help support our campaign for more ABC funding in Eden, Monaro, and beyond?" Um, and so it's not here's a link to fund the ABC it's here's a link to fund us yeah that just takes to you get... to the Australian Tax Office website 
Yeah, no, no, it's a, yeah, it's a link. Fund us to get other people who disagree with the IPA to uh, the ABC to be forced to fund them. Now, the IPA get a mention. It says Andrew Bolt, the IPA, and the Daily Telegraph have come out swinging against the ABC. Uh, now, the thing was, so I mean, this is pretty standard stuff from GetUp. The thing was, the, it was based on a report from Per Capita, which is a left-aligned think tank, um, about funding to the ABC, uh, about how the government, the coalition government, since 2014, has defunded the AF, the ABC to a large amount. It says that this government is responsible progressively defunding our national broadcast to the tune of $783 million. However, there are a few errors in the report, James. Uh, the report claimed the ABC budget was $879 million, failing to mention the $183.7 million transmission funding that takes the budget of the ABC to $1.062 billion. And that will increase to $1.07 billion in 2021-22. Now, you can imagine the meeting, James. Right, we're going to do a report. We're going to make it about the ABC. How much funding do they get? Someone goes, oh, you know, it's 1.062 billion. Hmm, a billion. <laughs> that's, that's a big number, isn't it? Can we make that smaller? Can we make that yeah. a smaller number? Okay, well, let's take out transmission. No one needs transmission. What does the ABC need transmission for? You know, what, 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 why do we have to transmit our product? The, uh, what are they called? Get Up responded, said transmission funding is always assessed separately from operational funding for the national broadcasters, a practice accepted by both sides of politics. Oh, that's okay then. It's just a practice accepted by both sides of politics to cut out the absolutely critical core mission. Like the most, the most important part of their funding is that it's this transmission. But it's just accepted. We're not going to include it. Anyway, whatever. I'm getting carried away. Clearly, it's over. That was an amazing one-man Clark and Door sketch for the Young IPA podcast. I'm really <laughs> glad I got to. In there, no, I, will, I will defend the report. Like, not in a sense that it's right, but I don't think it was, like, as malicious as you say. Because one time I was asked, like, when, when I was working at the IPA two or three days a week, I was asked, like, what's the ABC's budget? And I got that $865 million figure, and then someone's like, no, you need to include transmission. So I just reckon someone didn't have the calm oversight that I had of, some of like, go back and try again because I don't think you're right on this. I think they just got the green light to go ahead. I'm trying to think who that would be. I reckon it would have been James Patterson. So, oh, full yeah. circle. Well, there you go. Maybe. Look, maybe. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not sort of, I'm sort of taking a bit of poetic license here. I'm not suggesting that they deliberately, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, what is this thing? We just don't count transmission. Come on, mate. Uh, now, there was a little bit more. Oh, yeah. So, Media Watch presenter Paul Barry, journalist Alan Fanning, and presenter Adam Spencer tweeted out in support. Uh, Adam Spencer said, my bias on this subject is, I'm sure, self-evident. Yes, it is, Adam Spencer, but this is a national effing disgrace, so always with the swearing. And it's just the main thing is like like journalists in general at the ABC who have absolute job security whinging about money at a time like this. That's the broader point. Uh, yeah, I think we did that point on a previous show, so we won't belabor right. it, but good point, Pete. Uh, well, now, we have to because they keep doing it. <laughs> fair enough. All right, uh, I got... Two stories here for the end. This cat is in my head. Did I mention that on the show? No, I didn't. No. All right. So just for the people playing along at home, there is now a cat sitting on my fence. It's not mine and it's just staring at me. So I think the house is now the cat's uh, and I'm on borrowed time here. Uh, all right. So I've got two stories at the end here. Uh, now, Joe Biden is old. We all are very aware of that. And he's not exactly appealing to young people in the same way that uh, other youth figures like Bernie Sanders has in the past. Sorry, but Democrats are really starting to figure out how do we get this guy among young people. Now, one uh, idea from Liz Smith, who was a Democratic strategist, worked with the Pete Buttigieg campaign, really got my attention because I love it so much. Here's the quote. 
Travis Scott's takeover of Fortnite. All right, all right let me, I'll, I'll backtrack. I'll backtrack for the Peter Gregory's of the world that don't know exactly what that means. So in the game Fortnite, uh, rapper Travis Scott, people might know Sicko Mode, debuted his new song in the middle of a Fortnite game. So if you're playing Fortnite, suddenly Travis Scott just appears, does his new song, everyone gets around it. Good marketing. Now, Travis Scott's takeover of Fortnite, says Liz Smith, Democratic campaigner. If we could do that with Joe Biden for the convention, Joe Biden projected over the Grand Canyon, that'd be something that we could look at. Now, she then goes on to say it's a bit optimistic, but how do we make Joe Biden appeal to the kids through Fortnite? Pete, I've got some ideas, unless you want to start off with any of yours. I just want to clarify, is she saying that he'll be in Fortnite over the Grand Canyon? Uh I think it's a mixture of both having him over the Grand Canyon and having him in Fortnite. Like, whatever okay. way you can project, let's go with it. I don't play okay. Fortnite. I don't know if the Grand Canyon's appeared in any of the recent maps. I doubt it, but that is the quote. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Instead of projecting him onto uh, the Grand Canyon, you project him onto Mount Rushmore, but he's sniffing George Washington's hair. I don't mind it. Don't mind it? All right. Because uh, it about- says he's going to be... Sorry, keep going. No, you go, you go. I was just going to move on to my next idea. Oh, okay, well, he's going to be a great president, but it's also capturing a realistic likeness of him. There we go. I'm I'm happy with that. Uh, And idea two I've got, he's a playable character in Fortnite and so is his arch nemesis, Corn Pop. That is very good. These are both good. These are both good ideas. I reckon they should do both of them. Yeah. Uh, and I, what I like about projecting Joe Biden into a video game like Fortnite is that you can write off anytime he goes off script and can't finish his sentence. It's just an audio glitch. You just do what the yeah. North Carolina governor did. I don't know if you saw that one. No, no. Uh, so North Carolina uh, is giving a press conference, wheeling off the ending of restrictions and did a Ron Burgundy, go F yourself, San Diego, because he dropped the F-bomb that was clearly written in by an aide in the press conference. <laughs> and then Whoa. goes later... It was an audio glitch. Is it audio? No. Oh, audio it? glitch is like the sound going off, mate. It's not just a new word <laughs> yeah. in the middle of it. And why would your aide write that? The aide's sacked by now, mate. You can't put everyone in the boss's speeches. Why would you do Unless that? Unless it was like, here's going to be my press conference, write it down word for word. And someone's like, well, you said word for word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like when, when Biden, the man of the hour, uh, when Obama did it, was it Obamacare or something about education? Anyway, they were doing the big announcement and he lent in and said, this is a big oh, effing deal. Yeah, hot mic. <laughs> yeah. That was different because Biden thought he wasn't on mic, but this guy was like in the, like looking at a mic as I am now. And he says, yeah, yeah. In a press anyway, uh, all right. So final story I want to get into. Miriam Margoels, who gets keeps getting wheeled out to chat shows for reasons that are far beyond my comprehension. I don't know why she's on Q&A as much as yeah. she is. Uh, or who is she, time. by the way? Was she in Harry Potter? She was in Harry Potter, yeah. There we go. I All forget right, so which character, but yeah. It's, uh, it's like that happens with the ABC. Comedians and stuff, because their political views are what they want, just get on. Yeah. Uh, they're not qualified. So this is a Q&A clap. So Miriam Margoyle, she still gets wheeled onto these chat shows. She's on the last leg with Adam Hills, which is a UK chat show. By the way, one of the great YouTube videos of all time is when Chris O'Dowd rocks up to the last leg with Adam Hills. In, a, in the middle of a blackout drinking session. And oh, yeah, I've no idea that. where he is. So I'll shout out that. to that video. But anyway, Miriam Margos on the last leg, Adam Hills, was asked what she thought of the UK's response to coronavirus. And somehow, like, this isn't even the last leg of a four-minute answer. This is basically her first couple of sentences. Play the tape. I mean, I have difficulty not wanting Boris Johnson to die. 
I wanted him to die. And then I thought, that reflects <laughs> badly on me. Yeah, I just... Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Shout out to the... Phys- like, for people that only are listening and not watching... Every other person on the last leg panel who were all on like their Zoom cameras in their own homes physically revolt <laughs> at that idea. <laughs> but like, how divorced from reality do you have to be to go? I deserve a pat on the back for not wishing someone I dis <laughs> for not wishing death upon someone I disagree with. Yeah, like, is no, that the bar? Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. That, yeah. Is that where a, we're at? <laughs> I'm such a you know. I should work at the UN. I'm such a you know peacemaker between different groups. And it wasn't even like, I don't want Boris Johnson to die. It was, I don't want to be the person that wants people to die. <laughs> so, what yeah. is that? Yeah, anyway. Like, I sort of still do want him to die a little bit. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think this show's run long enough, but uh, I think we wanted to get into one thing, just to leave on a positive note, positive visualization for the end of coronavirus. Uh, oh, yeah. Stuff we are looking forward to. Just, I've been keeping a list of personal things I'm looking forward to when coronavirus is over, just to positive visualize. Pete, what is on your list? And I might add it to mine. Okay, I'll give you three quick ones. I'm getting to meet my nephew on Saturday, which will be fantastic. Okay, he's not like, on my list. Uh, Pete's <laughs> nephew, not on my list. Not in my top five, as per Daniel Andrews' instructions on dinner parties. Yeah, so he's like six weeks old, so it'd be good to meet him. Uh, Going to have a few frosts with the boys, but not over the computer screen, because he's been doing it on Zoom, which is, you know... Yeah. has its limits. So that's with the boys and, is number one on my list. Okay, that's good. And the last one, awkward Zoom silences where you both speak at the same time. And You mean like three you go, times in this show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens, in, it happens in this show, it happens in like meetings and just over it. Yeah. Just over uh, it. Here's a curveball for you, Pete. This would be my number one. I put this on my list of things I'm looking forward to. And this is going to be the sign to me the coronavirus is well and truly over. The next time I'm on a crowded train... And all I am is just annoyed at the inconvenience. Like that is the number one sign that coronavirus is behind us. When you're not like this crowded train, like someone's got it and we're all going to get it. Where you're just like, why did they delay this train? How do they delay it every single morning? Like, I don't know when I'll get to that thought. Maybe it's like two or three years from now. But that, when I had that thought, I'm going to go, coronavirus is done. I hope that you do. And I hope that you don't just focus on the inconvenience of the train. Because <laughs> you might just focus on that. Yeah. No, I'll definitely go. Hang on. When have I said this before? Uh, yeah, anyway, that is good. it for the show this week. Uh, go to ipa.org.au for that special join offer as a part of the release of The Heretic. Make sure you're sticking around because it's out on Friday. Get around it. It's awesome podcast. Thank you to James Patterson and Gideon Rosner. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Oh, on Friday. See you Friday, yeah.